We're going to be covering James and First and Second Peter tonight, but before that we did have a couple of questions from our overview of Hebrews a couple of months ago, and I apologize in advance for the brevity of the answers to these questions because uh, if we, to give them a full answer would take up uh, a great deal of our time, maybe all of it. But uh, about Hebrews, first question, you went on at length about the one high priest, the one sacrifice, and the one atonement for sin. Why then does the New Testament call believers priests that offer spiritual sacrifices as per Revelation 1, 6 and 5, 10 and chapter 20, verse 6, Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16, 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and 9, which we may glance at a little later this evening, uh, Philippians 2, 17 and Philippians 4, 18. Of course, this question is about the priesthood of all believers, which is a broad subject, but to give a very succinct answer, the functions of a priest biblically are essentially two, intercession and oblation, or offering of sacrifice. I hope all of us understand that Christ's intercession and sacrifice are of an entirely different type and scope than anything that we can do, and they are alone of saving merit. We cannot do anything to... Uh, atone for our sins and we don't intercede uh, for one another in the sense that Christ does. We do certainly pray for each other. We've just been praying for uh, different people including some of our uh, brothers and sisters this evening. So we do intercede for one another in prayer and that's mentioned in those verses that were listed on uh, the priesthood of believers. But when you read those texts it's always about uh, offering up praise and, uh, and thanksgiving to God, the calves of your lips, uh, giving thanks to God, things of that nature, and uh, acts of charity. I think there in Philippians 4.18, Paul uh, refers to a gift that the Philippians had given to him. He uses the uh, imagery of an incense offering, that it was an odor of a sweet savor to the Lord. I believe that the primary reason that there must be a priesthood of believers is so that uh, one of the great uh, statements of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, could be fulfilled. In Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, as the Lord was preparing to give the Ten Commandments, which would be the basis of the covenant, and uh, bringing, his, bringing the terms of the covenant before Israel so that, they would, uh, so that they would know what He required of them, He said, Now therefore, if ye will obey My voice indeed, and keep My covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto Me above all people. For all the earth is Mine, and ye shall be unto Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Of course, Peter uh, quotes that almost verbatim in 1 Peter 2.9. So, this was what Israel was supposed to be. They were, Although they did have their own sacrificing priesthood of the sons of Aaron, the whole nation was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. They were supposed to be kings and priests unto God. Well, what we find is that Israel completely failed to live up to what uh, they should have been. But in the New Covenant, God makes His people what Israel was supposed to be. Because God doesn't just write the law on tables of stone he writes the law on fleshy tables of the heart so that we become what Israel was supposed to be, but of course because their hearts were uncircumcised and, and stony, they did not become that. So this is what God has always intended for His people, but it did not come to pass under the Old Covenant, and God brings it to pass under the New Covenant. National Israel failed to become what God called them to be, and so in the New Covenant, He makes of us what He would have us to be. Now we do need to understand that there is no propitiatory uh, priesthood in the New Testament among believers. There's only one propitiatory priest, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He made one sacrifice for sins forever, as Hebrews chapter 10 emphasizes several times, just in the first 15 or 20 verses of that chapter. Uh, We don't have any priests who are getting up here and blessing the bread and wine or doing anything that uh, is supposed to be contributing to uh, a sacrifice for sin for God's people. There is no such thing as a priesthood like that in the New Testament. It is a 100% invention and uh, sadly has stuck among large denominations of Christians, but nobody with the New Testament in their hands can justify having uh, what they call a separate clerical priesthood. Every believer is a king and a priest unto God, and uh, the uh, the pastors and bishops and so forth uh, are not any more priests to the Lord than any other believer is. <clears throat> Another good question, Hebrews 13, 11, verses 33 through 40. This is uh, towards the end of the role of faith, as uh, the author of Hebrews uh, sums it up and just lists several things off really quickly. Hebrews 11, 33 through 40 seems to be written in the past tense before most of the martyrdoms of the Christian era. Do you think the faithful Jews mentioned in the book of Maccabees could be included even though they aren't, aren't mentioned directly in the canonical books? Well, some of the words in Hebrews 11, verses 35 through 37 in particular, seem to have at least some reference to the two books of Maccabees, which are in uh, what we call the Apocrypha, the Roman Catholic Church Uh, of course, and others uh, consider the Apocrypha to be Scripture. Uh, There is no question historically that the Jews in Christ's time did not regard the Apocrypha as Scripture. They did not have it laid up with the 39 books of the Old Testament, although they had it divided up into 22 books, but it's the same canon that we have. But they did not have the Apocrypha with their Old Testament Scriptures in the temple. They considered them to be very uh, important works, but they were not considered to be canonical. But in uh, verses 35 through 37, he talks about women receiving their dead raised to life again. That's from the Old Testament. But he talks about people who were tortured and would not accept deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And this appears to have some reference to some of the sufferings of the Jews during the Maccabean period, because they lived at a time of dreadful persecution, particularly from uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was prophesied of in the book of Daniel. And there were many Jews who were cruelly tortured and slaughtered at that time uh, because there were some Jews who were compromising and going along with Antiochus and him uh, introducing paganism into the temple and, and uh, casting out the priesthood and so forth and slaughtering pigs in the, uh, within the sacred precincts of the temple. But there were other, others who accepted torture and death instead of submitting to uh, the pagan worship and requirements of uh, their heathen enemies. Well, what this should teach us is that by no means should we imagine that the only heroes of the faith are those who are recorded in the canonical scriptures. Throughout all of history, I suppose, including the 400 silent years between the Old and New Testaments, God has always had a people for himself, including believers who preferred even torture and death uh, rather than go into idolatry because, as he says there in verse 35, they hoped for a better resurrection. So I do believe he probably is referring to the Maccabean period, uh, particularly there in verse 35 and maybe verse 36 as well. But uh, by no means should that uh, lead us to the conclusion that uh, the Apocrypha is part of the canon of Scripture. There's uh, really no reason at all to believe that. All right, uh, we're going to get on now to our uh, study in James and First and Second Peter. Before we begin that, let's uh, take just a moment to ask God's blessing on our study. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for bringing us here tonight to worship. 
We pray that our ears would be attentive to your word. And certainly there is uh, no book of the scripture, even the very briefest, that can be adequately uh, presented and applied uh, in one sermon. But uh, we just hope to give a... uh, give something of the sense of what is in these books and to whet our appetites for a deeper understanding of them. And I pray, Lord, as we read your word day by day and peruse it, that we would uh, have a good understanding of it and would know how to apply it to yourself, uh, to ourselves and that you, by your Holy Spirit, would take your word and speak to our hearts through it to rebuke and correct and inform and instruct us. Please bless us this night, Lord. Help those who uh, at the moment have no hunger, no appetite for your word, uh, please have mercy upon them and cause them to see that there is no knowledge in the world uh, as compared uh, that is worthy to be compared with the Word of God and that they would take up their scriptures and begin reading and studying it and pondering it even until the day they die. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Just to uh, start off with, I'm going to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5-7, through 7, and uh, you'll see why. It's because I want to introduce the two writers of the books we're going to be looking at tonight, and uh, I think these verses help to uh, establish their credentials as apostles and, uh, and as uh, legitimate authors of sacred scripture. In, here at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is uh, naming off several of the witnesses who saw the risen Lord after uh, he was raised from the dead. And just breaking into the middle of it, in verse 5 he says, and, and that he was seen of Cephas, and of course that's Peter, then of the twelve, after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, and some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. So you see the names of the two writers that we are going to be uh, looking at their works tonight. So we'll take up, uh, first of all, with the epistle of James. And uh, the obvious first question that is raised when we come to look at the book of James is which James wrote the book of James? Because we have at least three who are prominently named in the New Testament. We have James the son of Zebedee and brother of John who was one of the most intimate acquaintances of the Lord Jesus along with Peter and his brother John. Then you have James the son of Alphaeus who is named as one of the original twelve apostles in Mark 3 and verse 18 and then you have the James who was lit, named there in 1 Corinthians 15.7, who, though he was not one of the original twelve, yet the Lord appeared to him after his resurrection. In fact, uh, it appears that the brothers of the Lord did not actually believe on him until after he was raised from the dead. If you go and look in John 7, at least some of them did not. So this James was a brother both to Jude and to the Lord himself. And this is the James that most likely wrote this epistle. There is... Uh, As far as I've been able to discover, there is pretty widespread agreement that James, the brother of the Lord, is the most likely author of this book that bears his name. There is no trace of uh, tradition or history uh, in the annals of the church that ascribes it to James, the son of Alphaeus. The other James, uh, the son of Zebedee, was martyred by King Herod. You read about his death in Acts chapter 12 and verse 2, and it is believed that that occurred around 44 A.D., which is probably a little too early for the writing of this epistle. Although, uh, I suppose you could make a case that this was one of the earliest letters, and it could possibly be early enough for James, the son of Zebedee, to be the author, but uh, it is much more likely that it was James, the brother of our Lord, uh, who also was one of the early bishops in the church at Jerusalem. Some do believe that this book was written before 50 A.D., which would make it one of the earliest of the New Testament writings, 
but uh, it probably was a little too late to come from uh, James, the son of Zebedee, as I already made mention. Uh, this James, the brother of the Lord, would have been the only other James who, although he was not one of the original twelve apostles, he still, uh, having seen the risen Lord and having a very prominent place in the early church, would have had the kind of authority that would have made him a viable candidate to pen one of the canonical books of Scripture. We've seen there in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7 that the Lord made a special appearance to him after his resurrection, something that is not recorded in the gospel but evidently was well known to Paul and that, and that story had been circulated among the New Testament uh, churches. And Paul lists off all of these names and appearances of Christ uh, not as something that he's informing the Corinthians of but simply as something that, that all of the churches were aware of, of all of the different groups and individuals that the risen Lord appeared to. Now there have been, as there are to every book, there have been challenges to uh, James being the author and uh, people will say things like, well, he was raised in a Galilean carpenter's home so he couldn't have mastered Greek to write as well as this writer did. But you have to remember that Greek was what they call the lingua franca of that time. It was the kind of the universal language of the Roman Empire. It was uh, probably would not be correct to say that everybody could speak Greek, but uh, it was the most widely used language uh, in the empire at that time because of the influence of Alexander the Great and some of his successors and the culture that they established uh, really all the way around the Mediterranean and over to the borders of India in the east. So James was somebody who as a fisherman would have been involved in commercial transactions that almost certainly would have included Greek speakers. And then uh, being in Jerusalem as the lead bishop of that church, we know that there were Greek speakers among the early believers. You remember the great controversy there in Acts chapter 6 was between uh, the Hellenistic widows, which would have been the Greek-speaking widows, and the, uh, the Jewish widows, because the Greek-speaking uh, Jews did not believe that their widows were getting a fair shake in the administration of charity. So there would have been Greek speakers there in the church at Jerusalem, so uh, it's probably safe to conclude that the lead pastor of the church would have been able to speak the language of uh, a good percentage of his congregation. So that, that shows you the nature of a lot of the arguments against the authorship of books of Scripture. They're usually uh, very implausible uh, and specious at best. James's ministry in Jerusalem was almost exclusively among Jews, and you will remember from Galatians chapter 2 that it was some of his compatriots who went down to Antioch where Paul was ministering and actually led some of the, uh, and led, Pete, led Peter astray uh, to where Peter uh, committed that act of cowardice and quit eating with the Gentiles. So uh, coming from a Jewish setting, there, there, was, uh, there, were, there was some Judaizing tendencies evidently in that church and among some of James's companions. Now, I want to hedge this a little bit because almost anybody who uh, ever goes to a college or even reads any kind of modern books will see uh, people talking about how James was a theological opponent of Paul and things like that. But Paul never presents James in that way. And we have in chapter 21 and chapter 15 in the book of Acts make it very clear that James and Paul were on the same page theologically. Amen. A lot of uh, the critics like to say that James chapter 2 was written to oppose Paul's teaching on justification. But actually, uh, if you could have got James and Paul together and, and read James chapter 2, the last half of it, and then read Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Paul would have said, yeah, read verse, read verse 10 where I say... 
he didn't write in verses, but just for our <laughs> just for our uh, uses, uh, Paul said, "Look, look there in verse ten. I say that we're created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them." That's all that James is saying in James chapter two. So anyway, that's uh, probably the most well-known section of James. We won't have time to dig very deeply in it to, into it tonight, but I want—I hope that all of our minds are at rest, that there is no theological opposition between James and Paul, even though there were Judaizers that were acquaintances of James and, uh, and were, had positions of importance there in the Jerusalem church. Now I say all that to make the point that James is what we might call the most Jewish of all the New Testament epistles, it seems to have been addressed uh, exclusively to Jews, and with it being written very early in the history of the church, as far as we can tell, uh, probably the majority of believers at that time still were Jews. Chapter 1 and verse 1, we see that it's addressed to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. And interestingly enough, also in chapter 2 and verse 2, that word that is translated in the King James as assembly is actually the word synagogue, and is usually translated as synagogue. And that may perhaps indicate that some of James's hearers were still worshiping in Jewish synagogues. As far as we can tell, many of the early believers among the Jews uh, continued on in the synagogue worship for as long as they could until they were finally driven out and expelled uh, when their Jewish brethren rejected Christ and the gospel. But since he does write to a Jewish audience, and since it seems that many of his hearers and readers were still there in the synagogues, that probably is indicative of a very early date for this epistle. But uh, I think we can be confident that his audience was primarily and maybe even exclusively Jewish believers in Christ. Now we need to understand the context of the book of James. We need to understand that James is not writing a manual of soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. James is a book of Christian ethics. That's what it's about. I would say that if we have a counterpart in Scripture to the book of James, it would be the Old Testament book of Proverbs. James is somewhat of a New Testament book of wisdom. I'll be pointing you to a text that brings that out here in a few moments. And of course, this is important to note because uh, all worksmongers, the Roman Catholics being leaders, but not the, they're certainly not the only ones, they take that section that I've already alluded to in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, or excuse me, verses 14 through 26, where James warns against dead faith and a faith that does not work and says that a man is justified by works and not by faith only, they take that to be a soteriological passage. In other words, he's describing how sinners are justified before God. Now, if Rome and others are right in saying that that is describing how sinners are justified before God, then we would have to say that James and Paul don't agree with each other. Because Paul makes it very clear that our works have nothing to do with our justification before God. But when you understand James's purpose in writing is to establish what true biblical, practical Christianity is rather than to describe how God saves sinners, you really don't have any problem with it. Because all James is doing is showing you that if you say you believe in Christ, but you have no good works, you have no interest in serving the Lord, you're not walking with Christ... You have a dead faith, a faith that is not doing you any good, and a faith that will no more save you than the faith of the devils that there is one God. So if you understand what James is writing about, it will keep you from being troubled by uh, some statements that sound on the surface as if they're opposed to what Paul writes, uh, particularly in, to the Galatians and the Romans. 
One of the ways I think we can tell that James is not writing a manual of, or a doctrine of salvation is simply the fact that he only mentions the name of Jesus Christ two times in this epistle, and almost in passing. In chapter 1 and verse 1, he calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Uh, those are the only two times that Christ is actually named in this epistle. James is not telling us how sinners are saved. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about the cross or the resurrection or anything about that. Not because he's unaware of them or thinks that they are unimportant. It's simply not the issue that he is dealing with in this writing. He is a, rather exhorting his Christian brethren to faithfulness in trials, to godliness in their speech and in their attitudes and behavior towards their fellow believers, along with many other general instructions that are of invaluable use in every age of the church. I've said this already, but uh, we know that James had the same concept of grace as Paul and the other apostles because we see their concurrence in the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 and also in Acts 21. Paul goes back to Jerusalem and he meets with James and some of the other elders, describes what he's been doing in the Gentile world, and James doesn't argue with him about what he's been preaching. He commends him for it, and uh, they go on from there. And you also see a great similarity between James and other New Testament writers in a text such as chapter 1 verse 18 where he says of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That is a, uh, that is a great description of the sovereignty of God and salvation. That our salvation is not according to our own unaided free will but we are born again because of the power of God exerted upon us and within us. Now, although James is addressed to Jews, the exhortations that he gives throughout these five chapters are of timeless use among Christians in every generation. You certainly don't have to be a Jew to appreciate and to profit from what James has written. He begins by exhorting us to count it all joy when we fall under heavy trials because these trials work patience. And what a remarkable statement that is. Some of those words that are very easy to read but not very easy to put into practice when you're the one who is facing heavy trials to think of it as a joyful thing when you are uh, under divers or many temptations and testings. But he tells us to count it joy because these things work patience in the believer. And obviously patience is something that we all have great need of. From time to time you'll hear a Christian say, don't pray for patience because you won't like the way that God teaches you patience. But uh, I'm somewhat sympathetic to them saying that, but at the same time, it's probably better to learn patience in the hard ways that God teaches it to us than never to learn patience at all. Amen. Well, James directs us to seek wisdom from God. Very precious verse in, uh, ch in verse 5 of chapter 1. If any of you lack wisdom, and probably all of us would agree to one extent or another, we lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and a great promise, it shall be given him. What a precious verse that is. He tells the poor to rejoice in that they are exalted by God's grace and the rich in that they are made low, verses 9 through 11. He pronounces a blessing upon those who endure temptation in verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Very similar to the kind of teaching you have uh, from Christ in the days of his flesh where he taught us that he that endures to the end shall be saved. Uh, I didn't get this into my notes, but it, it occurs to me now, and I don't want to miss saying it, that uh, in addition to being somewhat of a counterpart of the, uh, 
of the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, you will find very much of the Sermon on the Mount here in the book of James as well. Much of what Christ taught in the Sermon on the Mount is reflected and repeated in some places almost verbatim here in the book of James. So uh, obviously James was a very careful listener to the teaching of his Lord. We cannot give a thorough analysis of the contents of this epistle. James leaps very quickly from topic to topic, addressing each one bluntly and powerfully, speaking directly and convincingly to our hearts. But I think one of the things that we ought to pay particular attention to is his warning about our way of speaking. Chapter 1, verse 26, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. This is something that comes up frequently in James is what the marks of true religion and the marks of vain religion are. A vain religion is basically a religion somebody has that is not uh, the true grace of God in the heart. Something where you may go to church and practice some religious things, but you never have been born again. Now he elaborates much more upon the tongue in chapter 3 verses 2 through 12. He talks about the tongue being a fire and a world of iniquity and how it's set on fire of hell and how it does so much great damage and destruction I'm not going to turn and read that, but hopefully you're well acquainted with that. And uh, all of us need to take this to heart. A person who does not try to guard their tongue and the way that they speak to other people and about other people is somebody that James says is not a true believer in Christ. The teaching in chapter 2 about church life in the first half of the chapter and the importance of not discriminating against some believers because of their social or economic status And, of course, we've already mentioned the second half of chapter 2 a couple of times already, this contrast between dead and living faith. These are passages of great importance which deserve our careful attention and thought. We see an emphasis, uh, not, not quite so much as you have in Proverbs, but it's certainly a major emphasis in James on the theme of wisdom. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, you see James setting as a contrast between earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom and the fruits which each of them bear. So this is one of those passages that's good to come and measure ourselves by and see uh, which kind of wisdom that we have. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation. Conversation usually in the Bible means your way of life, not talking about your uh, going back and forth and talking with somebody else. Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. So if all of the wisdom that you have, if all it does is make you argumentative and bitter and hateful and a grudge holder, that's not heavenly wisdom. You may have some theology associated with it, but it's not the wisdom of God. Except verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So you see the great contrast that he draws between heavenly wisdom and earthly or devilish wisdom. Then in chapter 4 we have warnings about strife and a description of the causes of it in verses 1 through 3. Verse 4 we have a very stern warning against the friendship of the world which makes one the enemy of God something that is uh, always a very timely warning for God's people, something that we uh, want to warn about when we see churches turning turning after cultural Marxism and embracing those kind of ideas and bringing them into the church and pretending they got them out of the Bible. Uh, 
But we don't want to just be looking at others. We need to be looking into our own lives and seeing where we are getting too friendly with the world as well. We find exhortations to humility. Verse 10 of chapter 4, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He shall lift you up. A great principle, something that you could almost uh, think of as being stated in the book of Proverbs. How about this? Verses 13 through 15, Submission to God's sovereignty in our daily plans and actions. Go to now, ye that say... Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. And that's why some of us, almost any time we talk about doing something in the future, add a Lord willing to the end of it, not just as something that sounds pious to say, but because we recognize the truth of what James is saying. We may be planning to do something, we may be planning very carefully, but God can upset our plans any time that He pleases to do. He can make us die before we ever get to carry them out. If, uh, if nothing else, He has a thousand ways of upsetting our plans. So this is basically James's way of saying that man proposes, but God disposes. So that teaches us that we need to be very humble in the way that we approach our life. Because we're really not in control of very much. Our car can break down. Our health can break down. Anything can happen that uh, can thwart and ruin all of the plans that we have so carefully laid. One of the interesting things that we find in the book of James is these strong rebukes of the rich. And uh, as they were the great persecutors and enemies of God's people at that time. Uh, You can read that particularly in chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. It is interesting, though, that James does not do what, uh, what you will sometimes hear advocated. His solution is not for us to revolt against the power and go out in the streets and demonstrate and that kind of thing. But he tells us to be patient to the coming of the Lord and to remember the example of the prophets, to remember the example of such great and godly men as Job. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure, Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. A good and valuable instruction for us in a troubled time. And he concludes his epistle with uh, some interesting teaching. We have that uh, very notable passage, verses 13 through 16, about uh, what somebody is to do if they're sick, to call for the elders of the church, to be anointed with oil in the name of the Lord. And he says that the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. Uh, Of course, that continues to be a matter of some controversy among the Lord's people as to whether that is something we should continue to be doing or whether that was something that was restricted to the apostolic and miraculous age uh, that has since ceased. And that's always a good discussion to have. There are good people on both sides of that equation. Then in verses 17 through 19, we have another earnest exhortation to prayer. And he closes by encouraging us, verse 20, with the reminder that those who convert a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. Now, I confess that this overview of James is very circumscribed. There's parts of it I haven't even touched on. But I wanted to just give us something of a flavor of the teaching of this epistle and to see how practical and how hard-hitting it is uh, with the hopeful prayer that it will excite us to a desire to taste of the fullness of it. And more than that, not just to know what the contents of this book are, but to be putting these very difficult teachings into practice. We'll turn now to First and Second Peter. And in dealing with the Petrine epistles, we cannot help but mentioning uh, 
at the outset that these two epistles, and Second Peter somewhat more so than First, are frequently challenged by modern scholarship going back at least 150 years as being spurious or pseudonymous. In other words, basically being works of forgery that somebody wrote and, and put Peter's name on, but it was not written uh, by Peter. Second uh, Peter, at least, uh, actually has a long history of being challenged, and as I'll bring out here in a few moments, there were uh, some very small minorities in the early church who questioned uh, the authenticity of Second Peter, but uh, as we'll see, the, those objections really uh, are groundless. Now, I don't bring this up just to, uh, just to show you what I've been reading or anything like that, uh, and not because I believe that the charges have any real validity or that they are not easily answered, but simply for the reason that uh, if you deal with people, or maybe if you go to a, I, I wish I could just say a college, but probably if you go to a Bible college or a seminary as well, you're going to run into people who are going to tell you that books like First uh, and Second Peter, among others, were not written by the people that they say they were written by. So if you, you're trying to witness to people, especially people who have been in universities and colleges, you are very likely to run into people when you quote from certain scriptures to say, well, that wasn't even written when they say it was written. The point being that we need to be ready for these kind of objections. You may very well not remember uh, the things I'm going to mention tonight when it comes up in your life, but uh, I will encourage you and exhort you to this, especially those of you who are younger, to uh, grasp this, that uh, very likely at some point in your life, if you're trying to defend the scripture, you're going to run into somebody that can bring up an objection that you don't know the answer to. But remember this, if you don't remember anything else, just because you don't know the answer off the top of your head doesn't mean that there isn't a good answer and response to their objection. There are excellent apologetic resources out there for Christians that they can avail themselves of. And if somebody brings up something that you can't answer, uh, don't let them say, well, I guess, well, I guess you're right, as if nobody ha could ha possibly have a response to it. Tell them, well, let me look into that and I'll get back to you. And if you go to the right resources, you will find that there are good responses to any objection that can be raised against the Scriptures. Amen. Most of the type of objections that are given to Peter's authorship of these books, and especially First Peter, are specious at best. Uh, very much like we said with James, they will say that Peter the fisherman could not have written in such a high style of Greek as you have in First uh, Peter particularly. But uh, once again, we say much the same concerning Peter as we did about James. He was a commercial fisherman on the Lake of Galilee, which was a land bordering Gentile territories. And so almost certainly, as he was catching and selling fish, he would have been selling to Greek-speaking people uh, from that region, as well as uh, people speaking Aramaic or Hebrew. And so it is quite likely that Peter would have known how to speak and probably to write Greek on some level. In addition, in chapter 5 and verse 12, we find that he was... Uh, apparently assisted by somebody named Silvanus. I don't know particularly who Silvanus was, but he was, seems to have been a, a companion of Peter uh, in his uh, ministry. And he mentions Mark in the same verse. And we know that Mark was a writer. He was a writer of one of the Gospels and uh, a very skilled writer. So uh, we would say that even if Peter's linguistic skills were unsophisticated, Silvanus or Mark could have polished them up in writing. Peter may have been dictating and they may have been writing them uh, down as he wrote and writing them in a style that was peculiar to themselves. I do want us uh, to divest ourselves if we have any notion that sometimes people try to pro propagate that uh, Peter was just kind of a bumbling and ignorant buffoon. There is that one place in uh, Acts chapter 4, I think, where the Pharisees and the 
and the council are looking at him and John and they see that they are ignorant and unlearned men. But Luke isn't there telling us that uh, Peter and John were stupid men. What he's saying is that the, the people who were, uh, who were examining them considered them as being ignorant and unlearned because they hadn't been taught in their schools. But uh, if you pay, pay very much attention in your own life and if you look into history, you will find that uh, all the smart people aren't the people that come out of universities. In fact, many times uh, all universities do is brainwash people and completely eliminate their ability to, uh, to think critically. So... At any rate, obviously there's nothing wrong with a good education if it's, put to a, uh, if it's put to right use, but the Lord can do great things through men who would be comparatively uneducated. Charles Spurgeon never spent a day in, in seminary, and he did more than a thousand men who have gone to seminaries uh, could do in a dozen lifetimes. Well, people will say also that uh, if Peter did indeed write this between 60 and 64 A.D., as, is, uh, as it is often dated, that he uh, talks about a persecution, but Nero hadn't even begun persecuting the church yet. Well, that's a very uh, specious argument in my view, because even though there may not have been an empire-wide edict of persecution that had been passed uh, by the emperor, there were local outbreaks of persecution all over the empire at various times. And you see it uh, happening against Paul as he goes into different places in the book of Acts. Sometimes the government doesn't care what he's doing, but sometimes they're throwing him into prison and, and threatening them with death. And in fact, Peter doesn't make any reference to martyrdom here in 1 Peter. So it's unlikely that the people he is writing to were actually being burned and thrown to wild animals or anything like that. But they were suffering uh, something from their, uh, the pagans around them, it would appear. <clears throat> Another objection they bring up is that the gospel could not have spread into the area of Turkey, that uh, modern-day Turkey, uh, would have been known as Asia Minor back then, uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, uh, this part of modern-day Turkey, they, would, they say that, well, Paul hadn't even visited those areas yet, so the gospel wasn't, uh, wasn't known there. Well, we know that there were other missionaries besides Paul that traveled in those areas and preached the gospel. Paul had never even been to Colossae, but there was a church there that had been established that he could write to. And uh, I believe that there were people converted on the day of Pentecost who didn't just stay there at the church at Jerusalem, but they went back to their own home territories and preached the gospel that they had learned from Peter uh, back in their own home areas. So uh, none of these objections are hardly even worth considering as far as being any legitimate opposition to Peter having written this first epistle. Now, among all of the books of the New Testament... I don't think there is any that is, is as much universally denied as belonging to the author who names himself than Second Peter. They bring up a number of objections to Second Peter and bring all of these as if they are absolutely conclusive. They say, for instance, that the similarity of Second Peter 2 with the epistle of Jude demands that it must have been written at a date later than Peter lived uh, because Peter, we are told, died in the mid to late 60s A.D., uh, and uh, so they say that he could not have written it uh, that early. <clears throat> of course, uh, that just assumes that uh, that Peter is borrowing from Jude when it could just as well have been that Peter uh, that Jude was borrowing from Peter, or maybe that neither was borrowing from the other. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in just a minute. They say, uh, by way of objection, that this letter was written to address Gnosticism, which did not have much of a footing by the 60s A.D. And they also reject the idea that Peter could have been familiar with Paul's letters, as he indicates in uh, chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. 
when he says that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, or twist, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. I don't know if this is true, but my personal opinion is that this is one of the main reasons that Second Peter is so violently objected to is because he refers to Paul's writings as being canonical scripture. Uh, I don't know if I could uh, validate that, but it's a, a strong suspicion of mine. None of the reasons and objections that they uh, lay against Second Peter, including differences of style, are, uh, have any real legitimacy as far as I can tell. Uh, as far as stylistic differences... It's interesting that in 2 Peter, Peter does not name Silvanus or Mark or anybody who may have been an amanuensis. So if 1 Peter was written in a more elegant style, it may be because it was, he was dictating it to somebody else, but he wrote 2 Peter with his own hand. And that would uh, readily answer the objection uh, to any stylistic differences. Now, as to the objection that Jude and Peter wrote in similar terms concerning apostasy and used a lot of the same examples and figures... Uh, we could say that, well, maybe they were in personal communication. Maybe they were there in the same place at a, at a particular time. Or maybe they were writing back and forth to each other. Or perhaps both of them were just giving expression to a thread of thought that was common among all of the churches uh, around the 60s AD. And uh, failing all of that, which uh, all of those are very plausible explanations, but even, uh, even if you discard all of those reasons, could we not simply say as believers that the Holy Spirit inspired them to use these very same examples uh, and figures that we find in 2 Peter 2 and in the book of Jude? Amen. Now they tell us that Peter was uh, that 2 Peter is written against Gnosticism, but really there's nothing in the text that indicates that Peter was writing against a fully developed version of Gnosticism. We do know that it, fairly early on in the history of the New Testament church that there were, was a very early form of Gnosticism that was making inroads in the early church because Paul deals with it in writing to the Colossians and 1 John is uh, concerned with proto-Gnosticism as well. So Peter certainly could have been addressing some early form of Gnosticism, not in its fully developed stature that it would reach in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, but he certainly could have been addressing a very early form of it but it may be that he's just dealing with the problem of antinomianism as well. It doesn't necessarily even have to be uh, a form of Gnosticism. And even if we agree that Peter died by, say, 64 AD, uh, he certainly, even by that time, could have been familiar with some of Paul's earlier letters, especially if we agree with men like uh, John Owen and John Gill, who believe that in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, he's actually referring to Hebrews. Uh, as a book in which there are many things hard to be understood, but uh, I don't know why you would want to restrict that to Hebrews, because I think in all of Paul's writings, there's uh, some things that are pretty difficult to understand that could be twisted to a person's destruction. But we know that several of Paul's letters probably were written before uh, the mid-60s, First and Second Thessalonians, for instance, uh, probably First and Second Corinthians, very likely Romans as well. So uh, these books would have been circulating very early in the New Testament church, and so it's no problem for us at all to believe that Peter uh, had not probably not all of Paul's letters, but probably had some of them at least uh, in his hands by the time he wrote Second Peter, which would have been towards the end of his life. <clears throat> One more objection that I will just mention very briefly. They say that uh, Peter uh, 
tries to deal with uh, the problems that the early church was having with the delay of Christ's return. That uh, there were people who were concerned that the Lord had not returned yet. Because the uh, early church was pretty much like the 21st century church. They had a lot of people in there that was looking for Jesus to come back any minute. Well, they try to tell us that this is something that popped up in the 2nd century. And to me, this would be laughable if it was not an attack on the Scriptures. Because what did we see when we looked at First and 2nd Thessalonians? First Thessalonians, Paul gives all this encouragement about the coming of the Lord and don't mourn like those who have no hope over your, your dead and departed loved ones. And in 2 Thessalonians, he, one of the reasons he's writing is because there were people who took that to mean that Christ was coming back any minute and so now we don't have to work and take care of our business. So there were people con, uh, who were assuming that Christ was not coming back uh, or that Christ was going to come back very soon uh, when Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians, which was very early on, so we should not be surprised to find Peter dealing with the very same issue in 2 Peter. Now, very briefly, in defense of the authenticity and the canonicity of 2 Peter, I can recommend an article that is available online by the renowned Princeton scholar Benjamin Warfield. Uh, some of you, uh, I don't know if anybody other than Dad has it, but maybe some of you have the collection of Warfield's works. I don't believe this article is in the collection that I have anyway, uh, but he has an article that it's available online if you just type in Warfield, Second Peter, or something like that. Uh, you should be able to pull it up. Uh, it's actually not as technical and difficult as some of Warfield's articles are, so uh, if you're interested in the subject, it would probably take you an hour or so to read it, uh, but I think that would be well worth your time. Warfield demonstrates in that article that contrary to the claims of the critics, Second Peter was known and referenced by Christian writers at a very early stage of church history. Uh, Warfield makes a very compelling case that even uh, into the late first century there were Christian writers who were making reference to Second Peter, which of course would completely undermine the argument that this was written sometime like in the mid-second century. Now, it is true that Second Peter did not just begin to be challenged in the last 200 years. There were some minority Christian groups very early on who questioned its canonicity. Uh, if I can recall correctly from Warfield's article, there was a small sect of Christians in Syria uh, that did not receive Second Peter as being a part of the canon of the New Testament. But this was a, it was always a very small minority who rejected Second Peter. This book was received by the vast majority of churches as an authentic writing of Peter under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And uh, there's no reason for us to, uh, to argue with that conclusion. We also ought to make note that when the New Testament was considering the writings that were circulating at that time and considering whether a book was canonical or not, they were not flippant and careless uh, about that business. They didn't just look at some writing and say, hey, that's got Peter's name on it. Let's, throw, let's put it into the canon of Scripture. They weighed and evaluated these books very carefully because the devil was hard at work forging books and putting apostles' names on books that were advocating Gnosticism and all kinds of other heresies. Tertullian indicated that the author of a pseudonymous work called The Acts of Paul was defrocked and removed from his pastoral position because he had basically forged some work and put Paul's name to it. And they took that so seriously that they removed that man from his office. And the church historian Eusebius, often uh, credited as being the father of church history, uh, mentions other writings that were considered and rejected by the early church as being false. So they were very careful in the way that they evaluated these epistles. And they weren't a bunch of stupid bumpkins who needed to be straightened out by German critics in the 19th century. 
Uh, these were people who did their work very carefully. They did not thoughtlessly accept anything with an apostle's name on it, but they carefully considered its credentials because they knew that men's souls could be ruined if they accepted false and heretical books into the canon of Scripture. There is nothing in First or Second Peter that is unworthy of an apostle or anything in either of these books that would make us think that it would not have been written by uh, the man that claims to have written them. Amen. Well, time fails us to give a very extensive review of either of these epistles, so I just want to touch upon some of the main themes. First Peter may be thought of as something of a manual for living the Christian life under trial and persecution. He begins with a doxology of praise to God in verses 3 through 5. Uh, listen to verse 3 and you see how, how similar it sounds to uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, which uh, that gives me some reason to think that one of the writings of Paul that Peter had his hands on was the book of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you didn't know that you were reading in First Peter, you would probably think that Paul wrote that. Very likely... Uh, Peter had, had read some of Paul's writings and was borrowing some of his language, certainly not a direct quotation, but was probably borrowing some of his language and ideas from his fellow apostle. Then in verse 6, he speaks of believers as rejoicing, even though they were in heaviness through manifold temptations. Very similar to James. Uh, I would say that verse 6 helps to set the stage for all the teaching that is to follow. He's dealing really with the problem of suffering in the life of the believer throughout the length of this epistle. We do not know for certain what the particular trial that these early believers uh, in that region of Turkey, modern-day Turkey, were undergoing, although it certainly seems to have included some degree of persecution, and perhaps they were looking forward even to a more severe persecution. I have heard it argued that this book was written to Jewish believers who had been exiled from Rome by Claudius Caesar. Luke mentions the uh, exile of the Jews from Rome in Acts 18 and verse 2 can't state any of that conclusively. I personally don't agree with the view that it was written to exiled Jews, uh, not only because it seems unlikely that a, a large colony of Jews would have been, traveled all of the way from Rome into Asia Minor, but also because there's a couple of places in First Peter that seem to hint that uh, at least a large segment of Peter's audience was not Jews at all. Verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, uh, that would seem to indicate that at least some of them were Gentiles. When he talks about the vain conversation you have received by tradition from your fathers, chapter 2 and verse 10, he tells them that you in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. It doesn't seem likely to me that Peter would have used that kind of language in speaking to the Jews, because the Jews were the people of God, at least nominally, in, uh, in having descended from Abraham and still having the promises and the, covenant, uh, the covenants. And so it seems to me that Peter is likely addressing at least some who are Gentiles among this group of believers. <clears throat> at any rate, we do know that there was a mixture of, of different kinds of people among them. We know that there were slaves among them. And just like his fellow apostle Paul, Peter exhorted the slaves to be obedient to their own masters, even if they were harsh. Chapter 2, verse 18, Servants or slaves, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. And that tells you that it wasn't written in the 21st century. So, anyway, like Paul, he also goes on to command submission to lawful authority. 
and to use that as a testimony to the world which wanted to portray Christians as being uh, social subserv- subversives, people who were trying to undermine, undermine government and authority. And he, uh, both Peter and Paul are in agreement in telling the early Christians to be obedient to the governing authorities and don't give them any excuse to think of you as rebels and subversives. He tells them that if and when they did suffer persecution, they were to take it patiently and to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ who went to the cross without complaint even though He had done no sin and there was no guile found in His mouth. Chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. He has some very valuable instruction on marriage. He encourages believing wives to live faithful, godly lives of modesty and submission even if their husbands are unbelievers in hope that they may be converted through the instrumentality of the wife. Likewise, ye wives, chapter 3, verse 1, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation or conduct of the wives while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. And he also instructs the husbands uh, at the end of this section in verse 7 that they are to honor their wives as being the weaker vessel and to live together with them as heirs of the grace of life in order that their prayers be not hindered be very easy to get off here and start preaching about marriage, but our time is quickly evaporating. First Peter is filled with exhortations to godliness, to patience under tribulation, to prayer, to love for the brethren, and reminders of our duty to bear a testimony to the unbelieving world, and to always be ready to give an answer to those who would ask us a reason of the hope that lies in us. That's chapter 3 and verse 15, a very favorite verse among Christian apologists. Very encouragingly, Peter bases his instructions firmly upon the gospel, constantly coming back to the blood of Christ, chapter 1, verse 19, to Christ bearing our sins in his own body on the tree, chapter 2, verse 24, to our election and priesthood as believers, chapter 2, verse 9. We talked about the priesthood of believers in addressing one of the early questions. Uh, it's, you will find it in verses 5 and 9, and particularly in verse 9. And he brings in the Lord's substitutionary death again, in verse 18, in a beautiful statement where he says that Christ also hath once, and see some echoes of Hebrews there perhaps, Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Sometimes people will tell you that none of, the, none of Jesus' own disciples knew anything about Jesus dying as a substitute or a propitiation. Uh, obviously these are either people who never read the writings of Peter and John or who buy into the critics who tell you that Peter and John didn't write these works. Peter and John obviously had the same view of substitution and propitiation as Paul did. Well, 1 Peter is a very practical epistle, but it also contains high and glorious doctrine of the gospel and manifests Peter's skill under the Holy Spirit as a theologian. I do feel compelled to notice in closing out our consideration of 1 Peter how utterly unlike the attitude of the Roman popes is the attitude of Peter alleged to be the first bishop of Rome. Nobody could read 1 Peter especially, but we could include both books. Just read the spirit of grace and humility that Peter speaks with here in 1 Peter and try to imagine uh, one of these arrogant popes strutting around in his, in his tiara and with his long robes and imagine the man who wrote this book behaving like one of these popes. There's really no reason even to buy into the very popular theory that 1 Peter was written from Rome. In fact, the historical evidence that Peter was ever at Rome is, to my mind, somewhat questionable. I know that there is a lot of tradition in the church that Peter was martyred at Rome, but there are actually good reasons out of the Scripture to question whether he was there. But in chapter 5, verse 1, 
Christ's leading apostle speaks of himself not as the one to whom the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed and you'd better listen to me and you'd better submit to the authority of the Roman, the Roman father or you're going to be damned, but he speaks of himself as an elder among other elders. The elders which are among you I exhort who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the, church, uh, of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. Now go read the history of the popes and you'll find out there was a whole lot of times where they were taking the oversight by constraint. And they were excommunicating whole kingdoms and forbidding the ordinances to be administered in entire kingdoms because they were having a squabble with the monarch of that particular kingdom. But anyway, you can go on and read chapter 5 uh, at your own leisure and just see how much different this is from the claims of papal infallibility and the authoritative and dogmatic declaration of Pope Boniface VIII in his Unum Sanctum Bull where he said that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. See if you can read 1 Peter and ever imagine the Apostle Peter saying anything along those lines. <clears throat> Second Peter is written as a strong warning against apostasy. It seems, judging by chapter 3 and verse 1, that uh, Peter is writing to essentially the same audience as, re as received his first epistle because he says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. So that seems to make a reference back to the preceding epistle unless Peter, like Paul sometimes did, had written more than uh, the letters that we have in the canon of Scripture and could per perhaps have been referring to one of them, but more than likely referring to First Peter. And we also see that it was written shortly before Peter's death by martyrdom. Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. I don't know if Peter had had a very recent revelation from Christ, or if he was referring back to that scene at the end of the Gospel of John, where uh, Christ told him that somebody was going to bind you and lead you where you would not go. But at any rate, it appears that Peter, very much like Paul in 2 Timothy, was preparing for his death, and so consequently you can detect a note of great urgency in his tone throughout this epistle. Now, if you read First and Second Peter, what you will find is that First Peter is primarily concerned with external opposition. That is, from the attacks coming on the church from the outside, from the pagans and the unbelievers. But in this epistle, his concern has shifted to internal problems. Those being the challenge of a burgeoning antinomianism, and to a particular type of infidelity which questioned the second coming of Christ. So these were not challenges being thrown out at the church by infidels from outside and those who were threatening to imprison them and to, and to kill them. But as chapter 2 and verse 1 declares, these were people within the church, including some of their own teachers. There were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction." So these are the counterparts of the false prophets of the Old Testament. People within the professing people of God who are preaching doctrines that lead to licentiousness. Letters such as 2 Peter help us to divest ourselves of the notion that the days of the early church were a golden age of unmarred godliness and doctrinal purity. The truth is that they faced the very same challenges and threats to the faith that we Christians do today and frankly without many of the helps that we have. They didn't have the entire New Testament canon, and they didn't have the writings of centuries of great theologians to help them either. 
The heart of this epistle is the second chapter where Peter denounces in withering terms these false teachers who were, because of covetousness, advocating pernicious doctrines, and Peter warns that they would soon suffer the same fate as the antediluvians who were swept away in the flood, as the angels that sinned and were bound in chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, as the filthy inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah who were destroyed by fire and brimstone from heaven. The chapter 2 is, uh, I suppose, what Peter was really writing the epistle for, to warn against these false teachers who were troubling the church. And uh, whether it was connected to Gnosticism or not, Peter's great concern was that they were advocating antinomianism. Ignore the law of God. You can live like you want. You have liberty. And Peter says that while they promise you liberty, they themselves are the slaves of corruption. There's other important things we find in this epistle, though. There is an affirmation of the deity of Christ in chapter 1 and verse 1. And uh, you know that we are uh, very fond of the King James Version, but actually this is one verse where I think that the modern translations get it better than Second Peter. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have, have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. This is actually the same language that Paul used in Titus 2 and verse 13. So it should actually be translated and is in many of the modern translations the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, this is Peter's affirmation of the deity of Christ. He calls him God and our Savior. That's how it, uh, that would have been a better and more accurate translation. In fact, you may possibly have, as I do, a note in your Bible uh, as an alternative translation that this could be our God and Savior. So, although I very much prefer the, the King James, as I know many of you do, this is uh, one place where I would have to say that the modern translations probably have it a little bit better. Verses 5 through 7, you have a beautiful virtue list where he talks about adding to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. Very wonderful text. We have a reminiscence in chapter 1 of Peter's experience with the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, followed up by a very astonishing declaration after ta talking about how the voice of the Father sounded from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This voice we, which came from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the Holy Mount. Verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Something that is even more sure than the voice of God speaking from heaven. What is it? Well, verse 20 tells us that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. See the high value and esteem that Peter places upon the sacred scriptures. And by the way, that includes the canon of the New Testament because he names Paul's writings in chapter 3 as being part of the canon of scripture. We have a remarkable description in chapter 3, verses 7 through 13 of the final conflagration in which the present creation is going to be destroyed by fire to be replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. And I've already made mention a number of times to his reference to Paul's writings and the evil use that some were making of them as well as Peter's attestation that these writings were considered by him as being authoritative scripture. And then he closes with an exhortation to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> well, these epistles are brief, only 13 chapters altogether that we've looked at tonight, but they're very powerful. And they also contain a number of very difficult passages, some of which I have not even mentioned or touched upon. So, I want to conclude tonight, as our time is just about gone, by making just a, one brief application uh, from the general themes of this epistles, simply to remind us of something that I hope all of us know, but uh, in case you're ever in danger of being poisoned by false doctrine, 
you can get your head into these three epistles and remind yourself that biblical Christianity is not a bed of roses. No honest reader could peruse the writings of James and Peter and come to the conclusion that these men believed or taught any form of easy believism or this modern concept of evangelism that what we need to do is just make it as easy as we possibly can for people to believe on Jesus and not really require anything of them other than that they say they believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. That, would, that had no place in the thinking of James and Peter or any of the other apostles for that matter. What we find in these pages is that true Christianity and true saving faith will lead us to seek after and to pursue an ethical standard higher than any earthly religion or philosophy could invent. Not some kind of asceticism or monasticism where you torture and torment your body for no real good reason and which doesn't improve you at all except to make you uh, more of a Pharisee than you ever were to begin with, but just living a practical life of godliness among your fellow men, within your marriage, within the church. We are to control our tongues as with a bridle. We are to seek humility and heavenly wisdom, to even go so far as to rejoice in tribulation and persecution because God is working these things for our good to submit to governing authorities that are hostile to us, and yet at the same time to maintain a faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and be always ready to give an answer as to why we believe what we believe and why we live the way that we live, and to keep your focus on the gospel, on the precious blood of Christ, on Him who bore our sins in His own body on the tree. And we are earnestly exhorted in these epistles to resist false teachers and their false doctrine. We can't afford to be like certain denominations are where uh, if somebody's in your denomination, you never say anything bad about them and never have any public controversy with them. When people come in and begin advocating antinomianism, we're supposed to go to war against that. Not, not to be rude and hateful and nasty to people, but we cannot permit licentiousness and false doctrine to pervert and corrupt a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are taught in these pages that judgment begins at the house of God. So that when God begins to execute judgment on a people or on a nation, the church is likely to be the first to bear the brunt of it. But that everlasting destruction awaits those who pervert or disbelieve the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lastly, as we close, we should notice that James and Peter wanted their readers to live in the light of the second coming of the Lord. James 5 verse 7, Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Spoken in the context of the persecution they were receiving from the the rich. Peter warned against those who reject the biblical teaching of creation and of the flood. Sounds very familiar. And mock at the idea of Christ's second coming in judgment. You guys have been talking about Jesus coming back for 2,000 years now. Why should we pay any attention to you? Well, one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. 2,000 years seems like a really long time to us, but it's it's just the blink of an eye to God. It's not any length of time to Him. Christ will come back when... God is ready to send him. He not not only, though, denounces unbelievers, he also exhorts us. After describing the destruction by fire of the present order in 2 Peter 3 and verse 11, he says this, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? That's always a a very powerful verse and a powerful rebuke to me that uh, I don't think as seriously as I ought about the destruction of the present order, about the second coming of Christ, and uh, consequently probably don't live as godly a life as I would if I paid more attention to such words as these. There's really no better application to close with 
No better exhortation than these words. What manner of persons ought we to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Let these words be branded upon our memories so that we can ever live sober and holy lives in the light of them. Heavenly Father, please bless this teaching. Please help us to understand Your Word and all of its parts. Help us to be able to put the different parts together and to be able to reconcile those passages which may seem to be at odds with one another uh, from a surface reading. We know that there is no contradiction in Your words, Lord, because uh, You are truth and You will not contradict Yourself. But we confess the feebleness of our own minds and our own worldliness, our own coldness, and all of the weaknesses uh, that beset us round about. I pray that You would stir us up in love to You, Lord, and to live in light of the great things that we have considered very briefly tonight, to live in the light of the second coming of our Lord. Now we pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost would abide with us as we depart and return to our places and occupations. In Jesus' name, amen.